months. And I walk in my father's office and I go, I hate to tell you this, but you're going to go broke. And he says to me, bleep, 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 get the F out of my office. One path is a long, winding, unpaved, back-breaking, bumpy, miserable road to a place called success. The other road is straight, paved, smooth, comfortable, and that road ends up in a place called failure. Welcome to the show. I am Kyle Matthews on the Matthews Mentality Podcast, where we dive into the mindset of the world's most driven founders, CEOs, business moguls, athletes, and entrepreneurs. Each episode will turn our guest wisdom into practical advice that will help you build a deeper understanding of what led them to success and the mentality behind what got them there. Let's get started. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Matthews Mentality Podcast. Today, I have a very exciting guest with me, a visionary leader, a pioneer in the world of retail real estate, and an expert in navigating the complex landscape of investments and acquisitions, a longtime friend and colleague of mine, Adam Ifshin founder and CEO of DLC Management Corp. Adam, thank you so much for coming to Nashville and being on. Thanks for having me. It's it's great to see you again. I do this every time, and it always makes our guests somewhat uncomfortable, but I have to read your bio. i got to give the audience a little um, color behind everything you've accomplished. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in real quick, and then we'll get started. So since its inception in 1991, Adam has grown DLC into the, one of the nation's premier owners and operators of open-air retail real estate, and is one of the most active acquirers of assets with value-added potential. As founder and CEO, Adam leads a team of over 130 real estate construction and design professionals across multiple businesses delivering value creation to retail real estate. Built from opportunistic and innovative deal-making for both assets and retailers, Adam has been involved in over $5 billion, that's a big number, $5 billion of real estate transaction as a principal, he has given back to the industry via long-term leadership roles on the executive board of trustees at ICSE and as ULI council chairman and council counselor. He has testified on behalf of the shopping center industry in both the United States House of Representatives and the United States Senate. In addition to his entrepreneurial and volunteer, volunteer careers, Adam has served on multiple public and private company boards as well as the boards of a number of charitable organizations. A committed education and equality-focused philanthropist, he devotes a sizable amount of his time to working to improve society for the next generation of young entrepreneurs and leaders. I know that to be true. Let's get ready to be inspired and enlightened by the insights of a very much a, a retail leader within the industry. Let's give a warm welcome to my friend, Adam. Adam, I'm so happy to have you. Thanks for coming. I'm happy to be here. It's really, it's, it, you've got a great way of going about this and I'm really looking forward to being, you know, Hopefully, I'll have some decent things to say after that extraordinary lead-in. I well, I mean, it's true. Oh, I hope it's true. But no, I've 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 very much been a witness to a lot of the success you've had, having, you know, had the 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 privilege to grow up in in the same industry as you on the retail side. Let's let's start. Just I want to know, you know, you've been in the business over thirty years. You've been a very you've been involved in so many different aspects. But what is it? What does a typical day or week look like for you? You know, the beauty about being an entrepreneur, I, I think, is that. Every single day, it, it can be different. I, I don't live an incredibly regimented lifestyle. I allow my days to be, if you want to be innovative and you want to be entrepreneurial, you have to have a flexibility. If you have this incredibly regimented schedule, you don't leave time for the thinking or the jumping at the opportunity that may appear to itself. 
I do sleep very, very little. I was, I was, I was an athlete in a sport that required. I was going to say up very, I, very early. I was going to say I've known you to be a very disciplined human being, especially waking up early, given your background on swimming and water polo. But. Everybody, everybody in the industry knows that you know I'm, I'm at the very top of the list of people you could conceivably get an email, a text, or a Teams message from before 6 a.m. in the morning. I'm an early riser. I don't sleep a lot. I come from a family of non-sleepers. So I like to get a lot of my thinking, reading, and, you know, get the day set extremely early. And then I'll go work out usually by 6 a.m. in the morning, wherever I am. Has that been your routine going back to when you were... I started going to morning workouts when I was 12, so Typically at 5.30 or 6 a.m. in the morning in the late 70s in New York City. Was that a function of, of a sport you were playing? Yeah, I was, I was a swimmer. Yeah. I was an age group swimmer growing up, and then I was a competitive swimmer and water polo player in college, small school, Division three. But as a result, that does give you that discipline. It does give you those, those incredible time management skills, right? Any athlete, it, it doesn't need to be athletics. It can be theater. It could be music. It could be anything when young people learn to do those things at a young age, just like you did growing up playing sports, you get a discipline and a time management that I think is a huge yeah. asset to being an entrepreneur. I tell people all the time, the advantage I had coming out of football in college was college for a lot of people, it it appears from, from the outside, it's a, it's a pretty undisciplined lifestyle. Like if you're not playing a sport, like, you know, your classes might start at two in the afternoon. So you, you're probably not waking up early. You might be staying up late. And, and I think that's a lot of times the benefit of college outside of just the actual education within your major. It's just over four years learning how to, to self-regulate and, and ideally create that discipline in your life. But for you on the swimming and water polo side, for me, football is like I came out of college having lived the last four years, very, very regimented lifestyle. And, and, and that is an advantage you know, over maybe your other stereotypical 22-year-old entering the workforce where for them it's it's a little bit of a lifestyle shock. But having played a sport, it it's probably a little more similar than to your experience actually while you were in school. Without, without question. I think you're 100% right about that. There's no question at all. What are, what are you know, as the CEO of DLC today, where, where are you spending most of your time? So I spend most of my time now on human capital and people. And then I send the second most amount of time uh, taking a role to help those people really move the needle from a, from a relationship perspective with one of three sets of stakeholders, which is recruiting additional talent to the businesses, raising additional money to fund the equity side of the business, and then, of course, with the retailers to deepen and strengthen our relationships with the retailers. But the overwhelming thing I do is I spend time with people, both in terms of helping to recruit people, but also to help our people unlock the potential that we believe they have when they come to work in an entrepreneurial culture. So I would say that that's probably now 60, 65% of my time. And then the balance of my time is really revolves around those other two key sets of stakeholders, which are our retailer clients and our institutional equity investor clients. So you're spending uh, more than half your time on the on your teammates and, and like you said, the human capital and the people you work with every day. But I do wanna ask about the assets. How many assets currently does DLC own and operate? And, and then also you know, share with the audience what you typically look for in acquiring a property. So in the open air retail space now, we've got about 17 million square feet under management. We are, we are an owner in a JV structure and the overwhelming majority of that. We do a little bit of third party for a select number of strategic long-term clients. 
That portfolio has got a value today of probably somewhere in the neighborhood of $2.4 to $2.6 billion. It's spread out essentially across the eastern half of the United States. We've made a big push and added a bunch of assets in Texas in the last three, four years. That portfolio today is sort of in the neighborhood of about 17 million square feet in that, in that general area. So what do we look for, yep. to answer your second question, is very, very focused. We are not an acquirer and a babysitter of core assets. We own core assets because we took non-core assets and we made them core assets. Mm -hmm. Today, the portfolio is about 69% conventionally grocery anchored and 85% with a grocery component, which might be a wholesale club, a super center, something, you know, box grocer, et cetera. But we're 69% tr traditionally grocery anchored up into the mid 80s with a grocery component. We are looking for assets with value added potential. That's what we're doing. We're an innovative and an opportunistic acquirer of assets where we think we can bring that human capital skill set that we spend so much time developing, nurturing, and inculcating, bring that to bear to unlock value that others might not be able to unlock across a wide range of assets. And that's everything from wholesale redevelopments. We've torn down regional malls and built power centers in their place to much more incremental value add that may have to do with a specific tenant relationship our team has. Yeah, as I was going to say is, is you know, defined value add, it's repositioning is what we call it, right? Through potentially scraping and, and new development, maybe some pad development, probably some retenanting if, and this hasn't been as much the case the last 10 years, but if, if the existing rents are materially below market and you can either bump them or, or find a, a, a better tenant. But yeah, I've always known you guys to be value add with a heavy grocer. The grocery business is doing quite well, right? The grocery business has really been a winner in, in, in COVID. I think post-COVID, post-COVID, not, not that that's the only reason, but I think the reality is, is it that period of time that we all went through together laid bare the weaknesses of a non-store supply chain in grocery. And I think it laid it bare actually not only in grocery, but across a broad spectrum. We're a huge believer that the store is actually the big winner coming out of the disruption of COVID and that both consumers and retailers realize that the store plays such a key part in that ecosystem. And that's leading to a wholesale reordering of things like sizes, tenants want, but grocery has been a big winner here. And I think it continues to be. We've seen a little bit of an easing off of the sales growth, but by and large, our grocers are seeing foot traffic anywhere from eight to 22% more than they saw in 2019. Sales are up at least that much, if not more, in some places dramatically more. And I will tell you that the grocers are now, even the mainline traditional grocers are coming in and they're starting to spend money to redo their stores. We've done a whole bunch of long-term extensions with the likes of Kroger and Ahold and others who are starting to put meaningful, not, not cosmetic money, yeah, but, but meaningful money back in the stores. And I think that, I think that bodes incredibly well for the health of the overall sector. Agreed. So based out in New York? So we're headquartered outside of New York City. Mm -hmm. I like to say that we're, we're headquartered wherever somebody on our team is with a client. We, ha we do have a bunch of regional offices, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Chicago, Dallas. We have a big presence in upstate New York, so we have a regional office in Buffalo as well. But it's really very talent-driven. It's human capital-driven, and we're not we're not locked into those locations to the exclusion of all else. You know, one of our one of our top leasing people 
was from Charlotte. He and his fiance wanted to move back to Charlotte. They were living in Atlanta. They live in Charlotte. Mm -hmm. But he's on the road three, four days a week anyway. So it really didn't matter. I'm a big believer about time at properties or what some people in the industry call tap. And I'm a big believer that it's a people business first, even more than it's an asset business. And as a result, that means that I want our team with those stakeholders that we can help the most advance their businesses. And and so, but not in Manhattan. So no, we don't have a presence inside New York City proper, except some select sort of special third-party projects. Yeah. But as a general rule, no. Not and, and I was saying from a, from a headquarters, and I figured that is because you've spent so much time there. I wanted to take it back to to your childhood and just tell us. So I was born and raised in New York City. For those of you who are not from New York, I spent the first six and a half years of my life living in a red bricked high rise project in a very, very downtrodden section of the Queen of Queens, very close to JFK Airport. My family moved to Manhattan when I was six and a half. Mm-hmm. I spent the rest of my childhood there. My dad was a real estate broker in the 60s and 70s and the early 80s in New York City. So I had a front row seat. Which was to probably that. wild. To, and we'll talk about some of those it, it was it was, yeah. it was crazy. But so my upbringing was a very urban upbringing. And um, I now live a, I now live a rather suburban yeah, life. And that, of right course, up. has to do with uh, it has to do with my spouse, who I met a long, long time ago, and we've been together for 34 years. And she was a country girl, and I was a city boy, and we know how that movie ends, 100 out of 100. Yeah, they're going to win that battle. Well, yeah, so I feel like the suburbs is a nice meet in the middle, right? So the, re- the reality is for our business, you know, and the rents are much higher now, but I used to say in the 90s, early 2000s, when people would ask me, well, why aren't you headquartered in New York City? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm in the $12 rent business right? And I'm investing all of the money that I make off those $12 rents in people. I said, it's incredibly inefficient to own suburban real estate and try to run it from an urban setting. The headquarters and all of the regional offices have always been based in incredibly accessible, highway accessible, airport accessible locations where we can get to the assets and be close to the assets as fast as possible. Got it. And so... You moved to the city when you were, I think you said six, seven years old. What was it like growing up in Manhattan at the time? It was pretty wild. You know, I mean, I was... I Different was, city than it I is was, today. I was, I was taking public transportation to elementary and middle school when the city was going broke. You know, there's been a I lot... Th- I think you... I remember you told me... I, I want to say it was you, you told me a story that your mom used to like put you on the bus at 10 to go go to your dad's office or... Oh, yeah. No, my yeah. mother. my mother took... When I was nine years old, 1974... It was a tough time in our house. The economy wasn't very good for being, for having a real estate broker as, as the breadwinner. My mother took, my, took me, I was nine and a half, and my seven-year-old sister to the New York City public bus stop and said, don't let go of her, and showed me how to take my sister to school. And my sister and I went off to school that way from then on. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that was normal. That was normal then. And by the way, the city was a far more dangerous place in 1974 yeah. than it is now. You know, there's been all this talk lately. Oh, you know, crime is up. The reality is, and we're very fortunate about this in New York, New York remains the safest large city essentially in the world with the possible exception of Singapore. It's just, it, it, it's still for the number of people who are there, we're very, very fortunate. And our mass transit system is not great, but it works. So I, I would say 
it was it was a much wilder time actually in the 70s growing up and uh, but it's but it you know the city is a resilient place and I'm still a huge fan of the city spend a lot of time there and it's it's working its way back yeah my wife's from the city I always say never bet against New York City even like in, in the darkest days of covid where there were some real questions about at least for me not not will it rebound but how, what would what will it look like and how long will it take but growing up in the 70s it was you and your sister Two? So yeah, I have just one sister. Okay, and uh, you were the oldest. I was, yeah. And so, what was it like having your dad as a real estate broker in New York City? So it was really fascinating. It was a very different time for real estate brokerage. Very, very different than it is today. There were no specialists. Everyone was a generalist. There were no national companies, and it was it was an era where you could really, not that you can't today, but back then you were really rewarded for hustle and grit, but you could also be a thinker. You could be an artist and you were unbound by every company having a national contract. Like, and people would pick up the phone and they didn't hide behind their email and their texts. You could real, my father was really, it was fascinating. And he, he's the person who turned me on to real estate, obviously. And for many of you who know, he passed six and a half years ago, but he, he was for many years an instrumental part of DLC with me. The reality is, is that back then, you know, he was not a conventional shirt and tie corporate executive. And it was great for him because it allowed him to be completely freewheeling. What was his, what was he like personality wise? And did you, were there, especially in brokerage and in good years and bad, did you, did you see that change based on the cooperation of the the market. Oh, for sure. And I will tell you this. One of, the, one of the things that my parents were tremendous about was they did not hide things from my sister and I. When it was good, it was good. And when it was not good, you, you knew about it. And that's okay. I mean, that's a life lesson, right? And I think that those are life lessons that have helped me very much in thinking about not only how I want to be an entrepreneur, but also how I want to be a parent and now how I want to be a grandparent. So I think that those are very, my father was very present you know, since he didn't have the corporate white shoe job, if, you know, if he wanted to leave and come to a swim meet or come to my sister's dance recital or drive us somewhere because we had to go out of the city for something for our own development, he just went and did it. He was very involved parent, certainly not an over-involved or over He was a very involved parent, very present. And it was, it was, you know, both of my parents were that way. In terms of your, your father, because it, you know, I know he had such a significant impact from a professional real estate background. I mean, I think you said, you know, he very much uh, led you into real estate or at least showed you the way. Was it, did you grow up in a house where he sat you down and gave you life lessons and, you know, said, here are my expectations or was it more of a lead by example type it of It was totally a lead by example thing. My dad was not that sort of classic this is the way we do it and you're, you know, I'm going to teach you how to do it my way and that's going to be perfect for you. My father was never that way. My father was, you learned at your own pace. My parents were both, they were both, you know, came of age as parents in the 60s and they were both, they had a very progressive view about that. My father had been a school teacher. My mother also had been an artist. So we were not, it was not a constrained, very regimented existence at all. And I think that that really helps, you know, people who want to chart a path that may not be as conventional. It's more conventional now to become an entrepreneur almost immediately out of school. 
It was very unconventional, even when I did it. Mm-hmm. You know, the overwhelming majority of the people that I went to college with, right? They either went to work in investment banking or commercial banking, or they went to work for a big conglomerate, or they went to graduate school. There were very few of us. Yeah, back that, then, again, that, stereotypically, it was like, hey, you're you're. The dream was to go be hired by whatever industry, some white shoe firm, you know, where, you know, it was all about the the name on the business card of the. Of oh the, sure, the, Goldman Sachs, yeah, Bain Consulting, yeah, whether Cummins a law Engine, firm or GE. accounting, yeah, totally. And I never wanted to do that, and I think a lot of that had to do with the type of very open mindedness to let us chart our own path that both of my parents. Certainly my father, my father never said, I want you to come into the real estate business. He never said that, but he, he created opportunities for me to be there and to be present. Was that something you would, you know, hang out at the office? I freaking loved it. Yeah. I loved it. I went to my father's office all the time when I was a kid and it was, you know, it was the 1970s version of. You know, we there were there weren't there weren't cubicles. There was a bullpen with bullpen. desks, but and it was not a huge business. It was a small business, but no, I loved it. And I used to I used to go to work for him from the time I was eleven or twelve. You know, back then listings got updated in paper binders, That's in right. three ring binders, and yeah. like you could go and you could see my chicken scratch next to like the 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 secretaries who had learned like real penmanship and I would go and he would tell me to go and canvas buildings and I, I did all that stuff. Some of the 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 older agents at the company I started at when I was you know twenty two and this was you know not the two thousand four they were telling me and this was even going back to the eighties so not even the seventies is about you know when you'd meet with an owner and they'd say, hey, I'd be interested to know what it's worth and I might consider selling. You would actually have to, you'd take photos of the building, then you'd take the photos to get developed and then you'd, you'd get the photos and you'd, you know, what is it, the glue stick? You'd glue stick the photos into the page with the, uh, you know, the, the P&Ls on the next page. It was very, very old school, very inefficient, but that, you know, just te- the technology wasn't there. But yeah, I, I just, you know, I've, they're, fascinated by how the business that I grew up in and brokerage was done back then. I'm sure hanging out at the the office, you pick, you start picking up on the real estate vernacular and all that. Oh, for sure. Oh, completely. I mean, the the that office was so devoid of technology. The technology was a Xerox machine and a phone. That yeah. was the sole there was total. No, there was no fax. There was, oh, I bought, when I went to work in 1987, my father was partners with someone in the residential development business at that point. He had mostly left brokerage. I bought the two of them, their first two fax machines so that they could fax things to each other. Was he like, I don't need this? No, actually. They, he was like, they, thank you. <laughs> they were so sick of paying messenger fees and FedEx fees between their offices that they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll invest in that. What, what, do you remember a notable deal or two that you, whether it's because you were at the office or at home, <laughs> your dad being a real estate broker shared or that he was put, put, put together? Yeah, so my dad did a, a number of really game-changing historic deals in New York City. And again, it was because it was a time where you could think it up and just go do it. Yeah, a couple stood out. I spent a lot of time with my father in a car when I was seven and eight years old because he moved the parent company of Panasonic, the Matsushita Electric Corporation of America, he moved their headquarters and their distribution, which was all based in New York City prior to that, 
to this place nobody knew of called the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Yeah. And it was when the deal was announced in 1973, it was like one of those, it was one of those inflection points where people are like, oh my God, everyone's gonna leave New York, it's falling apart. That was the first of that. And at the time it was the largest commercial real estate transaction in the history of the state of New Jersey. And if I wanted to see my dad in like the eight, nine months leading up to that, I would go and I would sit and ride around in a car with him and we rode around. I knew every, I knew every piece of every cat and nine tails in the swamp of the Meadowlands when I was eight. That was one. And then the other Bought one- Bought the land from the mob, right? No, actually. The, the, the person who was the developer was Leonard Stern at Hearts Mountain, went on to yeah. be a multi-billionaire. Uh, and that was the first big deal Leonard ever did. He was 26 when he did it. Speaking of multi, well, I think- Depends on the day, but who your dad's partner in a brokerage business for a period of time was Harry Macklow, right? It was. Harry Macklow is the person who brought my father into the brokerage business in 1966. My mother was an art student at a place, a, a place called the New School in Greenwich Village, and she invited the woman at the easel next to her to Sunday dinner in the projects, and it turned out that that was Linda Macklow. Harry's now divorced from Linda, but his longtime spouse. And Harry came and convinced my father to leave teaching and go to work on a draw for Harry the following Monday. Well, you, you know, you can't and it argue. Worked at, yeah, it, it worked, worked out, out pretty well. It worked, it worked out, really out well. well. So, so for the audience, for those at Harry Macklow, well, at least where I got familiar with with Harry was the book is it a liar's ball. Or liar, uh, yeah, liars. No, it was liars. Ball. It was the book about. It's a book about the General Motors. The building. General Motors yes. building, mm-hmm. which again, for those who don't know, it's right across the street. From Central Park, it's where the Apple store, it was where they, uh, I think Jobs put his first Apple store. The in first the, Apple store was the there. Basement. It's across the street from the Plaza Hotel. From the Plaza Hotel, General, excuse me. It yeah. was for many years considered the preeminent office building in And it was just about the history in, in of it traded. Donald Trump, I think, might have been, you know, the owner for, I think within that book it talked about how one of the, the legends of the building was the, you know, the gold Trump letters went missing the night before it sold or something, and who took them. And, but yeah, so, that, yes. that's where, you know, Harry Macklow, I think he was the first one to build uh, in New York City. Now, with the, the the mega towers, those incredibly yeah, he tall. Was the, he was the he was the original he was the original developer for Thirty Two Park, which was the first of the super tall what they call super talls in New York. Super talls. And yeah, no, my father learned the business from Harry, and I had a lot of I used to see Harry all the time when I was a child, and then had to go and deal with Harry when I was an adult over yeah. the tale of the commission from the deal in New oh, Jersey. God bless. It was really, it was pretty fascinating. And, and look, that again, one of the things about the entrepreneurship and real estate go hand in hand together, Kyle, whether it's on the services side, like what you do or what someone like Harry did or somewhere in the middle, like what I do. It's a, the, the ability to create something out of nothing, create a vibrant business that employs a lot of people with passion and a culture to do well for your family remains, even in this day and age, to me, an extraordinary opportunity in all facets of the real estate business. So your dad learned the business from Harry on the brokerage side. And and, and in some ways you learned the business from your dad, right? Just, just being around and I'm sure actively teaching you, but again, just sitting in the car, hearing, uh, hearing him, him, you know, describe projects or, or deals he was putting together. Uh, if I were to ask your dad about you, you know, just what would you like as a kid? Were you always very driven? Were you always very disciplined? Were you always very entrepreneurial? Or, you know, as I know you today, and I, you know, again, I've, I've had the luxury of knowing you for a long time now, were you always kind of the person who sits before me or, or was that something that might've been activated or, or developed later on? I was always super driven. 
always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And my father said I was always way too smart to be his son, which is, I guess, go to the ultimate compliment. Yeah. So there was, all of that came from a very, very early age. And certainly my father's the one who exposed me to the real estate industry, obviously. My mother was also instrumental in encouraging that there were no boundaries, right? If you're eight and you can do math of a 12-year-old, my parents would figure out how to get me into a class for 12-year-olds, right? It was, Got it. and they were very, they weren't, it wasn't like they were pushing me. I was pulling but they them. But they always were, they always worked hard to facilitate your abilities or your enthusiasm, your passions. My parents did everything for my sister and I. They really did. They they were incredibly great parents in that respect. And I was always very, very motivated. Very, very motivated. Always interested in in how, to, how businesses work. Not how like mechanical things work, but I was always interested in how businesses create value, margin, equity, however you want to define that. And I was always always, always fascinated by the real estate business. There's a lot in, and uh, look, part of the motivation even doing this podcast was really diving into the concept of, of high achievers driven people, you know, people with extreme levels of motivation of nature versus nurture, right? From a nurture standpoint, were there, was there a moment that, you know, looking back on your childhood, typically uh, centered around an extreme hardship or something very difficult that you feel you know, had it had an impact for on, on developing you as a person? So there there were two. One was shortly after my dad made this incredible deal and went and formed his own brokerage shop. Six weeks after that, a bunch of countries nobody had ever heard of in the Gulf quadrupled the price of oil and we had this terrible recession. Oh, 73? 73, fall yeah. of 1973, exactly. And as a result, I mean, the first two years that he had his business, they basically did no, they did no business. Think of like the first four months of COVID in yeah. the brokerage business, but have it go on for three years yeah. in a city that's falling apart. So there was a lot of hardship around that. And one of the things that I resolved even back then was that I was going, whatever I did entrepreneurially down the road, I was going to make sure that I was as good a risk manager as anybody could possibly be. I wanted to make money. I knew that involved taking risk entrepreneurially, but by the same token that I was gonna make sure that I was gonna do everything within my power to make sure that if I had a family, I would always be able to put food on the table and that I would always be able to meet the obligations and the burdens of being the, the, the head of a family. And, and this personal development of, of who you are and how you view the world, let's call it, is is a was a development in essence a reaction to being in a family and being witness and watching your father in a, in a very risky business where it's feast or famine brokerage historically, especially at that time. For sure, there, there's no question that I was I was never interested in building a brokerage business. Not that it can't be incredibly no, no, lucrative. No offense, to and anybody. we've seen you do it in spectacular fashion. But the reality is I was always interested in trying to figure out how to balance that out with durable cash flow streams yeah. that would enable us to both grow. And look, once you're over the minimum of what that cash flow stream needs to be to support your family, I have taken all of the balance of that and only done two things with it. I've reinvested it in the people and the assets of the business to continuously and continually grow the business because I believe that that growth is paramount. 
right? And then the second part of it is, if there's money left over after that, I give it away. It's very simple. Look, we live a, we're very, my family's very fortunate. We live a very nice, nice lifestyle. I don't think it's overly extravagant, but it's very, very nice, certainly. But after that, it's about reinvesting that money for good. Yeah, I've always known you to be very, very charitable, to put it lightly. So you, you're developing a passion for real estate, but you also are saying, hey, like I don't necessarily want to live the lifestyle of this insanely risky business of brokerage, but just how do I get into real estate but do it in a way that manages the risk? So I'm going to take that that concept and I'm going to kind of lead us into your career by saying, okay, so you're in high school, you're, you're, you have this interest in real estate. Now you're saying, okay, I'm going to go to college. Where do you go to school? Did you study for real estate? What, 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 what right. was so life I, like at that so time? So I went, I ended up going to what is generally considered one of the top liberal arts, small colleges in America, Williams College in Massachusetts. There was no, it was a complete liberal arts education. So there was no program for business, let alone real estate. And I was in economics and a history double major. As we mentioned, I was an athlete. When I was 19, I started, I was bored because those two things, three things weren't enough. So I started a business that actually became pretty successful. I, I knew that no matter what I did after I graduated college, I wanted to be able to prove that I could start a business using very, very little capital and get a cash flow positive. And that's exactly what I did. Well, when I was we 19. Gotta, you got to talk about this business. Tell so me. I started a contracting company when I was 19 years old. I, as soon as the swim season would end, I would commute back and forth to Westchester County in New York. My, a big motivation for doing that is, is my parents' marriage failed in 1980. Okay. And I, I had to become... And were you, were you, out, were you in college at the no, time? No, I was still in high school. You're in high school. And I had, to, I had to really become an adult in a hurry. And I was mature enough, but I, I knew that I wanted, I wanted to figure out real, really, really early if this entrepreneurial thing was something that I could do and know that I could support myself and whomever else ended up in my life in the long run. So I started this business. It was very, very successful. And as I was getting ready to graduate from college, I said to myself, I don't want to be a contractor. So I sold it. And, but it was an incredible learning experience and it was incredible in, ess in essence, think about it this way, the way, the way that tech guys would talk about it today, it was my proof of concept that I could be an entrepreneur. That you could do it. Yes. So I, I've always had tremendous admiration for people who commit is what I, but play a sport in college, but who play a sport where there's no, it's easy to play it's not easy. How would I say this? It's easy to play football in college at USC because you're like, oh, well, I'm going to go to the NFL and I'm going to, you know, have this amazing career, and make all this money. Right. Or, or basketball at, at Duke or something like that. I've always had tremendous admiration for the men and women I met who play a sport where there isn't really a professional league with with, you know, earnings and fame, like kind of dangling out there as the carrot to keep you motivated. I have, you know, water polo, swimming, rugby, wrestling, like, again, the sports that there's no being a first round draft pick and getting $10 million or whatever, you know, the way there is in baseball or basketball and football. Again, those sports, you know, take my word for it, are very, very hard. But, but talk me through your psychology and your mindset saying, hey, I want to play the sport again. I'm not going to go, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not going to go get drafted to some professional swimming organization and make lots of money. I, I'll lead you here. It's like, cause you did it. Cause you, you loved 
the sport and you're willing to work on it. You did it because you love to compete and you were willing to sacrifice, again, even though there wasn't this, this amazing opportunity within the sport down the road, what was going on through your head when you're in college, you're starting a construction business, you're double, you're double majoring in econ and history, but you're like, hey, I'm also going to do this thing that likely took tremendous physical and mental energy. So I, I, a lot of it has to do with you grow up doing something and hopefully you love it. I loved swimming. I wasn't very good at it. I honestly was not that good at it. And when I graduated high school, I weighed about 150 pounds and was five feet, 11 inches tall, right? If you look at- if I, you, I wish we could weigh 150 if you, pounds if you, if you go If you go on streaming and you look at the average size of the guys who are swimming at the world, 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 swimming world championships or this week in, in Japan, I, I was smaller than the average female who goes to, to world championships, let alone the yeah, guys. The, the male swimmers are like they're, they're, they're usually they're, what, six four, long arms, giant and long, backs, and yeah. longer. So I I made a conscious decision. I was very fortunate. I was a very very talented student. I went to a great high school, and I had an opportunity essentially to go wherever I wanted to go for college. And I made a very conscious decision that I wanted to go to a school where I could continue to swim. And that meant that I had to go to a division three school. There was no chance. And when I went, I had to walk on. I ultimately made the travel team, never was good enough to go to nationals, but I was able to figure out how good I would get to be. It was great because I made incredible lifelong friends. I got to continue to do something I had a real passion for. It kept you grounded, disciplined, mature. Mm -hmm. And no offense to the very accomplished football player across from me, there are more academic All-Americans in the NCAA in swimming than any uh, other uh, sport. Hey, you're not than the, any other sport that the NCAA not, holds yeah, a championship uh, you, for. You, you don't, I'm not going to make that argument. You're absolutely right. <laughs> what All four years did you swim? Or? I swam for four years, played water polo for four years. I had never played water polo until I got to college. Water polo, what, water polo guys are tough. We had our water polo team at USC, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's like one of the top uh, teams in the country and they get all these like Croatian and Serbian guys and they were, they were tough. Like you would not mess with those guys. They came from a different place. That is a legendary program. We had a much smaller, yeah. similarly division three program. But you know what? I, I knew that I wanted, one of the things that water polo gave me too was I obviously I'd been, I'd been the captain of my high school swim team, but I was captain for two years of the water polo team at Williams as well which was another, you know, why do you keep doing things? That's a great leadership opportunity, right? That's a great, we were, we were largely self-coached. We were largely self-organized. And as a result, you had to really have responsibility and you had to help motivate and lead other people. Yeah, I didn't, I, I knew you had played water polo and did swim. I, I didn't know the, the years. So I mean this sincerely. I have, I have tremendous respect for people who do it all four years. And, and the reason for that is, is playing football at SC, we'd see these guys come out and they're like, yeah, you know, okay, walk-ons, and I want to play SC football, and they do it. Maybe they do it for a year, and then they'd be like, well, I'm not going to play. This is really hard. I'm just going to go be a student because that's easier. I want to, you know, socialize, or I want to focus on education. That's fine. And it was almost like they were they did it just to check the ball. Oh, yeah, I played at SC, and they're like, oh, cool. But, like, it's like, eh, did you? You know, you played. We had a guy who came out for three weeks, you know, and then, you know, went home and, and so I've always, I've told our hiring managers at, at Matthews is like, you know, it's, you don't have to have played a sport to work here. That's a common misnomer. But I said, make sure you ask them if it says they played a sport in college. Just, I says, hey, did you play it all four years? And if they say no, just dive into that. Because you don't, what you don't want them to do is, is quit something because it was hard. 
or quit something because, well, I'm not going to play, so why do it? Is because there's a lot more reasons uh, to, you know, outside of you just you've made a commitment. There's a lot more reasons to play a sport than just I'm going to get on the field or or I'm going to go pro and I'm going to get drafted and and um, that's a big thing for me. So it's it's really cool to see that you did that all four years. So you're double majoring in econ and history, but you again, <coughs> correct me if I'm wrong. Your heart is in real estate. How did you? You, you're taking these majors again that they didn't have the real estate, you know, major at, at the, at the liberal arts college. How'd you get into real estate? Like what, what was, talk to us about graduating college. First job you took, like walk so, us through that period of your life. So the, the, the way I got in was, was actually very traditional, which is my father called me up my senior year of college. And at the time our relationship wasn't what it became. We were still sort of getting through the, the fallout of, of our family and, but he had gone and he had started a business with three other partners developing residential townhomes and condominiums in the suburbs. And he wanted me to come to work for him. Against all of my better judgment in a moment of filial loyalty, I agreed. And I went to work in that business when I graduated from college in 1987. And I immediately hated it. What did you hate about it? I, I immediately saw... I immediately was saw it the, the business. Was it so? If you think, if you family? think, if, yeah. you, if you think it's feast or famine in the brokerage business, okay. Yeah. Condominium development is the ultimate in real estate feast or famine. It's it's incredibly it's incredibly complicated. Site development, construction, sales and marketing. It's incredibly complicated. But I learned very very quickly that it came down to literally one thing, right? You make an assumption of out how many units a month you're gonna sell. And if you are one more than that, you become a multimillionaire. If you are one less than that, you go broke. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that business and I said to myself, and, all, and my father, having come from the brokerage business, had no risk governor, none whatsoever. He's like, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be as rich as Harry, right? I mean, that was kind of like his thing. Like I'm, he always wanted to be a developer. He got to be a developer and I'm like, and I'm looking at this thing and every week I'm there, I'm there, you know, three months, six months, nine months. And I'm looking at this and then the stock market crashes and I'm like, this is really risky, really Which risky. Which was the one thing because growing up with your dad as a real estate broker, again, maybe not to the level of a condo developer, but was the one thing you were looking to mitigate. <laughs> so... In 19, late 1989, I go in my yeah, there two the, years. Yeah, that was around the- is the start of the SNL, SNL crisis. SNL crisis, yeah. In, in late 1989, I, I put on my big boy pants and I walk in my father's office and I go, I hate to tell you this, but you're gonna go broke. And he says to me, bleep, 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 get the F out of my office. You, you're a snot-nosed kid. You don't know what you're talking about. Six months later, my father comes back to my desk and goes, do you still think you could get one of those job offers you had when you were a senior in college at Goldman, whatever that was? And my father literally yeah. did not know that Goldman went with Sachs. And I'm like, you know, I think that ship has probably sailed. And my father and his partners were doing, I don't know, four or five residential development projects in the northern suburbs, north of New York City at once they had borrowed about $90 million, all personally guaranteed. Oh, yeah. They had very little liquidity. Actually, they probably had negative liquidity. And I was just like, this thing is gonna blow up 
spectacularly, and it did. And then I got that informal education that created DLC, which is I said to my dad, I'll stay. Everybody else left. His three partners disappeared, like gone. Nothing to do with it. And I set about at 24 and a half, 25 to work my father out. And I did. And, and what was that like? What were, you, what were you doing? It was wild. Many years later, we, we wrote his autobiography together and talk about it a lot in that book. But it was wild and it was the Wild West. And I learned how to do workouts. And I learned how to do workouts in a manner in which I placed my credibility and my responsibility at the forefront. I, I wasn't the borrower, so I had a, a little room to maneuver. And I developed relationships with people at all of the various entities that took over all the failed banks, the FDIC, the RTC, the various public-private joint ventures that those two entities did with other banks to take over and work out banks. And one by one, with very little, he, my father was obviously, we were shoulder to shoulder in this. And this was really when we formed the bond that led to DLC, I started working out those loans. Mm. And it took a long time. One of my greatest accomplishments is that my father never had to file for bankruptcy, got him out. And in the middle of that, he's like, well, what are we gonna do next? And I said, well, I'm gonna, I wanna start this business doing what I'm doing for you for other people. And he goes, well, I know 100 people who need that service. I said, yes, I know you do, but those people, for you, it's for love. Yeah. Those, those people are gonna have they to pay gotta, cash in advance, cash. right? It's like asking, you know, it's like you're a lawyer and Donald Trump calls you like, yeah, I, I think I need a cash retainer That's here right. in advance, guys. Yeah. So I hung out a shingle, formed DLC, January 3rd, 1991. I always ask this question. I, I, when I started, I never thought, you before you dive into the story, we, How'd the name come about? I always ask about the so, name. So, yes, yeah, sure. So, and it, you know, look, when your last name is Ifshin, you don't race to put that on the front door, okay? So, you know, Matthew sounds a lot better there, buddy. No, so what happened was my father's development business was called the Delphi Land Company. And one of the few things that I had done there was I had spent $1,500 when he formed the entity to hire a graphic designer to create a logo. And I liked the logo. So I took the logo. And I said, well, this business is toast. This you know, can't, there's no way, no one will do business with this entity, right? So I just literally took the initials Got it. and DLC was Delphi Land it, Company. It's funny because, it, you know, so many times <clears throat> in having these conversations, you think there's this like crazy deep, you know, underlying message. And, you know, the stories have been generally like, oh, you know, it's just this. And we just rolled with that. Or, you know, me and a couple of buddies were drinking beer. We came up with this name and we just moved forward with it. But so Delphi Land Company your dad's development business became DLC. Now, your dad's doing mostly, and I can correct me if I'm wrong, a residential development. I think he focused on condos, but I've always known DLC as a retail investment and, and you know, a re operating platform. How did that transition take place? So my dad says, so you're starting this business. What's it going to do? And I said, we're going to go back to like what I know works, which is we're gonna do commercial real estate, not residential real estate. And it was all about the risk mitigation. It was all about the risk reward. And at the time, we knew nothing about retail real estate, zero. But what we knew was nothing was getting financed. But the only things that were getting financed were a little bit of retail, because back then, 
There were a lot of investment-grade retailers. Yeah. Kmart had an investment-grade credit rating. Sears, Sears. Had, a, had an investment-grade credit rating. Yeah. Service Merchandise had an investment-grade credit rating. So as a result, I said, why don't we try that? You have all this experience in commercial. The other thing that was getting, that was getting a little bit of financing was multifamily rentals because of Fannie and Freddie. Mm -hmm. But he had been in the residential business, so I was like running the other way. And in retrospect, maybe that wasn't such a great idea, but the reality is, is we went out and we went into business and we started doing, I went to all of those people that I had, that I had built relationships with at all of these entities and I just started, you know, the way you were making cold calls to sell assets, I was making cold calls or warm calls to people to say, hire us, I got licenses as a receiver in eight states. And we went out and I, and again, I was about the cash flow. So I was trying to take the, I was only taking leasing if I got the property management. If we could get the sales business off the end, that was gravy. I started to, to structure deals where we would make an incentive fee if we were successful, you know, with these various entities or private owners. And then about, I don't know, about 18, 19 months in, it was like, we hit a wall. And I was like, wow. Well, let me, let me push pause. It. What year was this? 1992. 1992. Started in 91. So, so let me ask you this question because I, I, I want to dive into that, that wall and, and really exploring what it was like as a founder and, and, and ultimately scaling a very big company. It's not always easy. So I'm interested to hear about that. But what was your, <clears throat> practically speaking, what was your life like when you were working at the Delphi Land Company for your father, what was your daily? What were you, how'd your day set up? What was your schedule? You know, and I really exploring kind of what your um, work life balance is, what they call it, uh, early in your career as you're coming out of college and you're building your real estate career. So the best thing that ever came out of the residential development business was it's how I met my wife. Yes. Um, who you know, yeah. um, and I met Alicia because she was part of a team that came to call on us to do new home sales in these townhouse and condominium it was developments. Was the best sale you ever made. Right, uh, without question, 110%. 34 years, yeah. 34 years. Uh, two weeks ago was the 34th anniversary of our first date. That's cool. So that, so that was certainly part of it, but I was, I was working a lot. I was probably working 60 to 80 hours a week, grinding really, really hard, learning on the go. I did a lot of stuff during that period of time. I ran a golf course, learned, learned, I had never played golf. I learned the, how to run a golf course. I learned the golf course management business. I learned how to watch a cash, a business that was mostly cash at the time so that you didn't get robbed blind by the people on site. I learned how to do entitlements during that period of time. I learned how to do everything from spreadsheet modeling to negotiating loan term sheets to negotiating loan workouts. Are you working or, weekends? Every single one. My wife was working, my wife probably four months after we left the real estate met, the real estate sales market started to go really south hard. Mm -hmm. She left the business to go to work full time in her family business, which was a retail business. Her mom was a retail pharmacist, had a store. She went to go work with her mom. That rapidly became how we, how we supported ourselves when I started DLC two years mm -hmm. later. I was in a, a in a romance where two people were working all the time. She was working every weekend. So it was really easy for me to work every single weekend. Why, why did you work so hard? Why didn't you just do a nine to five? I, I've never, I mean, I've never not worked all the time. It's just, it's what, just what, the way what, I'm what wired. Were your, I've always had a It's kind of a ethic. general question, but it's, it's still a really good question. Like what, what were your motivations at the time? My motivations were twofold. Mm -hmm. My motivations were to learn 
and my motivations were to see if I could build a business. I'm a huge believer. One of the things that drives DLC even to this day is there are people who look at challenges and go, oh, too tough. Let me go find something easier to do. And there are people who look at challenges and say, how do I make that an opportunity where I can make outsized margin? I'm in that latter camp. So, I mean, the first deal I ever did with a retailer, Kyle, mm -hmm. was a JV with Walmart. First deal I ever did with a retailer. It's a big start. And I, I called, I knew that Walmart's real estate guys were on the road all week and they didn't have cell phones. So what did I do? I camped out every Saturday with a landline phone and I called that guy's desk that I ultimately made the deal with a hundred times until he picked up the phone. Hopefully he didn't leave a hundred voicemails. There was no voicemail at Walmart say, back then. Yeah. Or the voicemail had like the room for Luckily, three things. Luckily there was no do not call. What was it? You know, the national <laughs> do not call registry back then. We got we to gotta navigate that. I would have absolutely been just blocked. It. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been blocked. Now nowadays, the especially the cell phone carriers like Verizon, AT&T, if a number calls an AT&T number more than, you know, 100 times in a week, they label it as spam. Even if it's a real person in brokerages, you know, you're making a lot of calls a week, especially early on in your career, you definitely would have been labeled as a spam caller. I'd, I, you know what? It, I, I was very, very driven to figure it out. I was very, very driven when I started my first business. I was very, very driven when I wanted to make the travel team in college and wasn't fast enough until I got myself there. And that's just so, the way I've always so, been. So that's the nature part. You were just, you were, you were like this out of the womb. I was always very motivated and very driven. I'm also a believer that you know, tough times are a big motivator. And that was a tough time. That was a really, really tough would time. You, would you say financial, you know, in your 20s, find just what I define as financial insecurity was a motivator? Just say, hey, I got to make money. I got to provide. Absolutely. Yeah. Without question. I mean, the first, the first year in 1991, DLC grossed $109,000. <laughs> and my wife's salary was about $36,000 and I put two crews back out on the street doing contracting work and they worked during the week and I worked with them on weekends because there was no, there was, there was no other way to make, to make ends meet. We, I was engaged by the time I started DLC. I met Alicia in 89, we got engaged in 90, got married at the end of 1991, paid for our own wedding, mostly. Her mom was very generous and very helpful, but other than that, it was mostly her and I. And, but those things were all very, very motivating. Talk to me about that wall you hit 18 months uh, into DLC. So 18 months in, we, we had- So this is 93, 94? 92, it was the end of 92. Of. We had two employees, my dad and I, and it was just like, wow, we're, we're just not, we're not gonna get this done. And it was- It was a slow time. Very it, tough time. It, I think it was a Persian Gulf was over, the Soviet Union fell, we win, time to- you know, from a government side, to just just cut back on spending because we don't need, especially from a defense side. And it just, it just the overall economy, from my understanding, it just kind of a lot of air got let out. Well, there was, but also the real estate industry was still exceptionally beaten up. Financing wasn't there. <clears throat> there was still a lot of fallout. Yeah, the change in the tax laws and all that. Exactly. So we got to a point where I needed, literally, I needed a 50,000, I needed to find $50,000 to keep the business going. And I didn't have it and couldn't find it. Didn't want to give up a piece of the business. Not that anyone would have invested in the business. There was mm -hmm. nothing to invest in. We didn't own any assets yet. We were managing a handful of assets and leasing a handful of assets. And I went to a banker that my dad knew 
and he agreed to take a, a request for a loan in for $50,000. And it got turned down. So he came, told us, like, wow, that really, really is not good. And I'm like, okay, you know, we have this little piece of office space. We'll let it go. We'll figure it out. Anyway, the guy says, you know, I'm going to go talk to the chairman of the board of the bank, a little tiny bank. And I found out many, many years later when that chairman of the board called me up and took me to dinner because I was his largest client at his bank and he offered me a spot on his board of directors that the loan officer, a gentleman by the name of John DiGiorgio, had come back in and said to the chairman, Bill, we need to do this. And Bill goes, nobody would, there's no rational reason to lend this, this company $50,000. But he said, you know what? He said, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna talk to the loan committee. And he went to the loan committee and he said, when we started this bank in 1972, these were the type of people we banked. Have we lost our way? Hmm. And he convinced them to lend me $45,000. And- And that kept you going. I never, no matter how big DLC got, I never left that bank. We became their largest borrower. We became one of their two largest private non-municipal depositors. I went on the board of that bank in June of 2008, right before the global financial crisis. Memo to file. That's some good timing. Memo memo to file. Do not go on the board of a bank in June of 2008. Helped save the bank and recapitalize the bank and grow the bank as a board member, not as an operator. What bank is this? This was a bank called Hudson Valley Bank. I went on the board in 2008, grew it to about 3.3 billion. We sold the bank, merged with another very similar bank, and that bank has ultimately, you know, grown and acquired a bunch of other banks and then did a merger, unbelievably, with a, a true merger of equals with a bank where somebody that lived next door to me in freshman year of college at Williams College is the CEO. That's a small world. So it all came back. That is a small world. So you got this this loan, and is that what set you on your way? So right after that loan, a couple of really incredible things happened. One is we landed the largest third-party contract we had got to that point from this new entity that was one of the very early real estate opportunity funds that were buying up like large pools of mortgages and working Mm -hmm. them out and foreclosing in real estate. And they hired us to do a bunch of things, and then they hired us to do a bunch more things. And then we met, my dad and I met the person who became the first limited partner investor with us who was willing to believe in us. And about six months after the loan in April of 1993, that person put up all of the capital for us and them to buy our first retail asset. And after that, it was slow in the beginning, but we ultimately, that was the start. So you just started every year adding a handful of assets to the portfolio. In the beginning, I mean, a handful was like one a Why, year. Yeah. It took a while. And then in late 1997, bought a deal that really broke us loose. It turned out to be a huge home run. I sold it. I bought it for about 12 and a half and sold it 10 years later for 36. Mm. And then, you know, we were growing slowly but steadily. And then the big explosion was in 1998, in the fall of 1998, the finance markets essentially imploded because of the Russian debt crisis. So the Russian ruble fell apart. That was uh, devaluing. This, right? yeah. this was when Yeltsin was, fall, the, the Yeltsin government was about to fall apart. 
and four speculative currencies in Asia all crashed at the same time. The financing market froze, and we had been outbid on everything. And all of a sudden, for the first time ever in my career, I got all these phone calls from all of these sellers who were like, you know that bid where you got outbid by 10%? How would you like to do that deal? And from September 4th to September 30th in 1998, even though our portfolio was had about maybe 50 or $60 million worth of assets, I tied up $100 million in assets to buy. Didn't have the money, raised the money, scrambled, closed all of those deals. And then before all those deals were closed, I got a phone call and got an opportunity to buy a $100 million portfolio off market and tied it up, didn't have the money, had tapped out everybody I knew, both institutionally and privately, mm -hmm. scrambled, and three weeks before I had to go hard, found the money for that deal. You're in the right town if you need money. New York City, there's nothing like it, but but yeah, that's got it. It's that, not that, like that I, I did not have stress. a huge, I did not yeah. have a huge track record at the time. Do not have yeah. the track record we have now. And literally in a year, we went from maybe $50 million worth of assets to call it $250 million worth of assets. So in this period, you know, 92 to 98, 99, as you're, as you're growing right before it jumps, or even let me, let me add in that period, you, you add all these assets. I asked this question earlier when you're working at Delphi land company, but now you're CEO of DLC, this slowly growing, then rapidly growing, you know, retail operating platform and owner. Um, what was your, your professional life like at the time in terms of, you know, the grind? I was working a lot. I was working really hard. My wife and I, in that period of time between April of 1994 and February of 1997, also had three children. I, that's where I was, I was leading you. So, you beat me to it. So, I, I know, so, and my wife was working in retail. So the answer is I could work as hard as I want, but if it was my day to make the daycare bell, you better make the daycare bell or they're not taking your kids the next day. That's right. So it was- After was, the third kid, did your wife continue to work retail or did- did she transition to No, she was she she worked she worked all the way up until when her mom sold their business in late 2002. So, so yeah, you no, have, she was you working. Have not dinks. There wasn't no kids. You had dual income. You had you had a, a working dad, working mom. You had three kids in what 36 months roughly. 33. 33 yeah. I mean that's crazy, dude. Good for you. Good, good for Alicia. God bless her. Three kids in 33 months. This is literally the period of time where you're you you found her growing and then even when your youngest was maybe one or two you have this you go from 50 to 250 million in assets like what was going through your head at that point were you just drinking <laughs> from a fire hose like what, what was happening so first of all alicia and i loved it Okay. Was it hard? Now, do you hold on? But we it's loved like it. Absence makes the heart grow fond. It's like it's something that was really hard and really difficult, really painful. Like the further away <laughs> you get, it, you're like, oh man, that those were the days. But like when you were in it, did you? And not that you, of course you love your kids, but or was it every day just like crawling to bed, like expending all energy, like exhaustion? It was tiring. There's, I'm not gonna lie to you. Yeah. It was really tiring. But it was, it was also, it was also, it, it was just the high the high from watching not one, but two businesses grow. Remember from, from like late 97 till early 2007, DLC then grows like 60, 70% a year compounded yeah, for a decade. My wife, when she went to work for her mom, that business quadrupled 
quadrupled its sales in a mature business that was being- What was the business? She was a, it was a retail, local retail independent pharmacy. That business quadrupled in size. And, we're, and it was just, it's what we did. Mm. It, it's, you know, by the way, it's like being a double major and having two sports and having a business in college is a really good way to, plan, gonna, to, to I was, prep. I was going to say it's a good foundation. But I, I, never, I, never, I never expected that I was going to have a family. And then I met Alicia. And she, she, was, she was the one. I'm like, okay, this is the person I can have a family with. Did I expect to have three children in three years? Mm, maybe I was a little yeah. surprised. If I had paid more attention to the ages of my wife and her brothers, who are two of my best friends in the world now, I probably should have been able to see it. But maybe I was just too busy being in love with a girl and starting the business. But it was it was it was crazy. Ever, but it was fun. Were there ever nights where you're just like, "This is too much," and it's not you can't ratchet down the kids. So it's like, "Hey, I'm even if it means we're going to grow slower, <laughs> we're not going to buy as much. Like I just can't go this hard at work." No. Why? It, that thought never entered my mind. It's it just, when I, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot at DLC now is we look for entrepreneurial traits in people before we invite them to join the team, before we either sign them as a free agent or draft them to be, we have teammates, we don't have employees. So I was very, very, I, I, I believe that those entrepreneurial traits can exist in a lot of people who are not necessarily entrepreneurs. In me, for better or worse, they are, they're there and you can't shut that off. So that's what I did. In the late nineties, and I'm going to generalize here, push back if you think I'm wrong. I, very different than today. Mental health wasn't uh, <clears throat> something you evaluated back in the nineties. And, and what I say is a lot of people today would be like, oh my gosh, like three kids and growing a business, like balance. And when did you find time for yourself? And next um, week. Yeah, next <laughs> tomorrow, uh, one day. But is that something that ever, like you're just like, okay, you know, yes, I have my commitments at home, I have commitments at work, and I'm going hard. Like, was that something you thought of back then where it's like, well, you know, what effect is this having on me physically uh, or mentally? I never, I didn't think about a, a lot in terms of what, what impact it was having physically. I don't think it had a negative impact mentally. I think is that exactly you the loved reverse. what you were doing? Loved what I was doing, loved my family to death, and they feed on each other, right? Which is if you're really driven to provide opportunities for your children and for your spouse and for the, ultimately your extended family, to me, that's a huge motivator. So would you say someone who's like, oh, well, you're working that much, it's a mental health, would you, would you say... If that's having a negative impact on them, you know, long hours and all that, it's probably because they're not doing something that, you know, quote unquote, they love to do, or that's bringing them satisfaction and fulfillment. I think that's part of it. And, you know, one of the beautiful things even today about the American economy is that there are such an incredible array of choices for people. What's right for one person is not necessarily right yeah. for anybody else. I remember not that long ago, you made a post on social media oh. where you got out your original notebook of what you did when you first started. Oh yeah, the, the million dollar schedule, right? Yeah. And the reality is, is that not everybody's wired the same, mm -hmm. right? And for everybody who's like that, there are some people who say, look, that's not for me. Look, the world needs, America needs more people who are great teachers. Now, if you're a great teacher, but one of the things that motivates you about teaching is you have the summer off, well, I'm not, you're not going to take the summer off. I'm not going to take the summer off, but guess what? We need people who want to take the summer off and they're willing to be tremendous. 100%, 100%. They're willing to be tremendous for eight if or nine months If we were all made the same, it would be a problem. 
it would be boring. It would be boring. I say, I say God makes everybody different. And if I'm in a position to give career advice, I just said like, I'm a simple minded guy. I said, do what makes you happy. Some people working 80 hours a week and building a business and, and not necessarily taking risks, but calculated, uh, you know, gambles is called professionally to achieve some incredible success because it provides them that satisfaction fulfillment. That's great for them. And other people, they're like, I would never live that life. The only thing that I counsel people on is like, do your best not to judge the other person, right? If, if you're a highly driven, highly successful person and you look at someone who's got a nine to five, 40 hours. And as soon as they're home, they're checked out. Don't judge that person. Cause if that's what makes them happy, then that's what they should be doing and vice versa. And a longer conversation, not, not, not for today is, I think one of the challenges we have in the country right now culturally is those who don't understand an Adam Ifshin, right? So someone who's incredibly driven and motivated by achievement and building and challenges. And oftentimes in success, there come in that professional success, there's often a financial success that comes along with it. I felt especially in the culture of the last 10 years, there's a tremendous amount of judgment and, and maybe even vitriol from that coming back is, is if you're really achievement motivated, it's like, oh, you know, that's wrong and you shouldn't be that way. And so for me personally, I just say, hey, listen, like everybody's different, do what makes you happy and do your best not to judge the other people. Yeah, we went through a phase at DLC where we called it don't like, and there was a phase, you, you went through it too, where there was a lot of talk about Oh, millennials don't have the same drive as the generations before them. And we used to have a, we used to have a saying like, I don't know what millennials you're talking to, but don't bash millennials because our millennials are killing yeah, it. Our millennials right? kicking ass, yeah. And the reality is, is that not every again, one of the great richnesses in America is that the combination of democracy and capitalism together, and they're inexorably linked. There's never been multi-generational capitalism that wasn't in a democracy. The linkage of the two provides such a rich tableau of options. You wanna work in philanthropy? You can work in philanthropy. You wanna help the indigenous, the homeless, whatever motivates your boat, mm -hmm. right? There's, there's so much opportunity to do things in the world that we live in. There's so, if you wanna be a helper, there's so many people who need help. If you wanna be a creator, there's never been more liquidity to be a creator. It's an incredible thing. And I, one of the things I, that troubles me sometimes is how we've so taken it for granted that we've stopped respecting people's choices. People may not agree with other people's choices, but one of the things that comes along with that is that optionality. Preach. So... Well, yeah, that's well said. We got um, a little off topic there. No, it's great. It's great. The, you know, it's there's no agenda for this conversation. We just let it flow. We let it take us <laughs> wherever it wants to go. But as a moderator, I would like to take it to, I oftentimes ask the question like, hey, talk to me about a moment, like a really challenging moment. So I'm just going to take a guess here and say, hey, talk to me about the great financial crisis as an operator of retail, 2008, 2009. What, how was that like at DLC? That was... Sucked. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard. It was very hard. So we were going into the... First of all, we bought a ton in 06 and 07, a ton. We took our first real institutional partners in 06 and 07. We, we were using the leverage that was available at the time, which was typically, you know, without MEZ, but there was still 80% financing around. A lot of it I.O. 
we were growing very fast. And then obviously the global financial crisis hit. We were very exposed. It's totally public record. I looked as a historian, I looked at, okay, well, there are a lot of people I know who've been through that before. Dennis Gershenson was through that. Milton Cooper and Marty Kimmel went through that. Hap Stein and his family at Regency went through like, like we, we, and you look back at that playbook and that playbook says, well, hmm, maybe you should go public. And a lot of bankers were calling. We did pursue going public. We called it off at the end of the day, at the very, very last minute, essentially overvaluation. We were, we, we were done with a roadshow. There was a book. There was a price. You just felt the price wasn't equitable to what you were worth. Did not, did not think it was remotely that. And there was a slight matter. You know, when you go public, the last thing you drop into the public document that everybody sees, the red herring, the S11, is your maturing debt schedule. And this was in August of 2010. And that maturing debt schedule showed that I had to repay $365 million of maturing debt by the end of the year. So I would, would logically assume that the market's efficient and that the market knew that and said, okay, I can get DLC on the cheap. And we said, no. And everyone looked at me like I was completely crazy. And I remembered what I had done in 1990 and 91 and 92. And in the middle of the night, as soon as the plane landed from San Francisco where we had called off the roadshow, I flew back to New York. The last thing I did before I got on the plane was I took out my phone and I called my father. He had had open heart surgery six weeks before. The IPO was obviously gonna be a very, very important thing for his life. And I said I called it off. And he never asked me why. He never questioned my judgment. He said, what do I need to do? I'll be in the office at 6 a.m., come home. Mm. And we went about with him and I and our team, and we got every single lender to stand by us and extend. And it was hard. We ultimately had to make some hard decisions around some individual assets. We gave some assets back, not unlike the big boys are doing now. I mm -hmm. took a lot of heat for it, but it was we had to make some hard decisions. We fought really, really hard to get our investment and our equity and our partner's equity back. I'm very, very proud of how the deals that we defended, we never missed a capital call, made every capital call. And was, we said, and we- and That was we, tough back then. It, was, it yeah. was two, three years are really, really tough. And you know what? We looked at the business and said, DLC 1.0 is over. And we came up with a plan and a strategy. And between 2013 and 2017, 2018, we reduced the leverage, remade the portfolio, sold a bunch of assets, bought a bunch of assets, and doubled the size of the business. So again, I'm all about when is that challenge really an opportunity just masquerading in some really, really, really ugliness, right? And did you have that thought in those darkest moments of the GFC? The GFC was, I'm not gonna lie to you, yeah, Kyle, the GFC yeah. and after we called off the IPO was really, really hard. But you know what? My wife was a stalwart. My partners internally and externally were stalwarts. We were able to convince people where we needed to put up more money to put up more money. And where we didn't think it made sense, we had to make some hard decisions. But overall, it was hard. But the nice thing about it, and I've seen this in every cycle since I started the business in 1991, 
the recovery time takes less and less and less, which means that our capital markets function and it means that you really need to think about how quickly can you play offense, mm-hmm. right? During the global financial crisis, I was forced to play defense. I had no choice. The big miss was if I could have played offense six or 12 months sooner, I wouldn't have doubled the size of the business. I would have tripled or quadrupled the size so of the business. So how quickly can you pivot? And how can you keep your brain sane and separate the offensive side of your brain and the defensive side so of your brain? So when you were a kid, you had you shared with us that you could tell how business was going based on your father when he came home. You just knew. Your three kids, some of which, some of whom work with you today, but if I were to interview them, just saying, hey, during this period of time, this great financial crisis where your dad was on defense, okay, just put it lightly, giving some property backs, you know, working with lenders on, on, on workouts and all that. Was that something in your opinion? Would they say, no, you know what? He's a pretty consistent guy. You can't really tell, you know, if it's really tough or you like, yeah, that was, that was really hard on him. <laughs> I could turn the tables and ask you, what do you think? Yeah. No, the, re- the reality is they do. They knew. And look, they weren't, you know, in 2010, my children were 16, 16, 15, and 13. Yeah, they weren't little kids. They weren't little kids. They had been exposed a lot to the business. One of the things that my wife, who's just so brilliant about things like this, she used to take the kids to, to, to work with her a lot. It was, it was both a treat and an opportunity, and you get exposed to a family business because mom and, gra- and grandma are there. But also, she wanted them to know what we did. And the first thing she said, when she came home to me and said that her mother had decided to sell the business and that she didn't want to be in the business without her mom, she said she made me promise her that I would expose the kids to the business. So they knew. They knew, obviously, I was, you know, I had to spend a lot of time when we were trying to go public, not around, a lot of nights, Mm -hmm. a lot of weekends. On the road, yeah. A lot of phone calls. So the answer is they knew. You know, I it's I don't I don't think that's a negative though. I you know I'm a big believer. Yeah, there's some things you shouldn't tell a five year old or a six year old, obviously, or expose them to. That's that's obvious. But you know what? You have to. Good parents are good judges of when their children are ready to know things or not know things. Did we ever sit them down and say, "Oh, we might go broke"? No, we didn't do that. But they understood the commitment and they understood the drive and the work ethic, and they all have it. Was there ever a moment in the GFC where you said, I am like, I might go broke, I might lose it all? Never. Okay. No chance. Why not? I always knew that I had, I always knew that I had built a safe enough base in a group of the assets that if I had to call off the IPO, there was a way to get by. That was all part of the risk mitigation. And it gets back to, as a kid, watching your father in brokerage, ups I ne- and downs. I never worried about I, I had virtually no mortgage on our home. I never worried about, I, you know, I wouldn't say that I was overly frugal, but I was always, I think, pretty financially careful. And I, I never worried about that. Now, I had a couple of weeks at the start of COVID where I worried about that. Yeah, that's, um, I, I don't know if, I don't think that was is unique to you. Uh, but was, I never, was a weird time. I never ever in the GFC thought that I was going to go. To, I, I knew I had, I had the risk management side of it boxed up. And as a result, you know, look, there are a lot of people who rode that wave from the same time I started DLC to the GFC, contemporaries of mine who were 
much, much more successful than I was. Much, but guess what? When, when the stick comes back around from the leverage and sometimes the personal guarantees tied to that leverage, mm -hmm. they got hit a lot harder. Yeah. You know, and I was willing to trade that. I was okay with less for some safety. But look, when you have a big black swan event, COVID, the GFC, the SNL crisis where I started the business, when you have a true black swan event of that magnitude, you know, you're gonna find out really how good your risk management was or wasn't because you have to take risk as an entrepreneur. If you don't take risk, you're not gonna make alpha. It's just not gonna happen. But how you take that risk and how you mitigate that risk is really, really important. So you made your way through the GFC. You never had a moment where you're like, hey, I'm going to lose it all. And that getting back to your risk mitigation strategy all the way back to the founding of DLC and, and kind of the thesis behind that. So we come out of GFC, you guys get bigger and bigger and bigger and accumulate. And, you know, COVID, I don't think we need to dive in. I know it was a very, you know, there was like, Two or three months there was like, oh shoot. But luckily the government activated in terms of a stimulus and with PPP and all that and and a lot of stimulus, a lot of money flooding the economy. And and now retailers are generally speaking doing very well. You know, vacancies are down. It, it's been a minute, but the operating fundamentals of retail are as good in my opinion, I, I want I want to hear your thoughts on that, is are as good as they have been since really like two thousand six, two thousand seven. I think they're better. Yeah. And I think the forward next 36 to 60 months are going to be on the, on the fundamental side, incredible. I mean, there's been effectively no construction in the last 15 years, you know, it's, there's uh, been negative construction, Yeah, right? You, you and I, you know, our, our mutual friend, Dan Hurwitz coined the term mm -hmm. back during the GFC, right? That we're not overbuilt, we're under demolished. And Dan turned out to be partially true. I think we were overbuilt. And I think Dan was a little tongue in cheek, yeah. but we were certainly under demolished. And you know what? That is working its way through. Every time you drive by that former Kmart that's now either been cut up for retailers, and we did eight of those, or it's a self storage facility, or it's been scraped and now it's class A multifamily, yeah. there has been massive adaptive reuse. There has been new construction at an absolute fraction of what you need to replace for 15 years. You're right. That is not that is not a phenomenon that comes out of radically increased construction pricing in the last 24 months. That is that that is just an acceleration of the same trend that's been in place. This year we're going to generate we're going to deliver in the industry less than 2% of the GLA new that we delivered like in the 90s on average. 98% decrease. That's wild. And over time, look, look at look at the fundamentals. Rents are growing, occupancies are high, net store openings. A lot of that too though isn't just the reduction on the supply side. A lot of that has to do with the fact that all of the doomsayers, all of them who said that the number I spent from 2014 to 2020 fighting off everybody oh, and their yeah. brother who said that Amazon was gonna the put us Amazon out of business. apocalypse. Okay, great. Yeah. Guess what? The end of brick and mortar. The most important thing in an omni-channel supply chain is the store. Yeah. And we, you know what? I'm gonna take a little credit here. We wrote, we wrote, a, we wrote we've only written two th research pieces in the history of DLC. We wrote one in 2020 during COVID because I guess maybe we thought we had nothing to do. I was gonna say you had some time. That was called the store one. 
and everyone laughed. Well, guess what? They're not laughing anymore because we, we, we put out a piece right before ICSC this year in 2023 called the Breath of, Fresh Air, a Breath of Open Air. And the reality is the store did win and you go now and you sit and you talk to retailers. And that's a big part of what I do. Talk to Target, talk to Walmart, talk to TJ, talk to Dollar Tree, talk to Pop Shop. I could go on and on and on. The store is the single most important thing in the customer experience, whether that customer experience is online or in person. Which gives the landlord something you have not had in a long time, which is called leverage. <laughs> so you have a little bit of that. We don't want to let the tenants know, but a little bit of leverage. So things are going well. DLC's humming. Operating fundamentals are sound. Rents are increasing. Vacancies decreasing. But you're still you're still going hard. How does your life today compare to you know the years where you were really growing and scaling DLC? So the answer is. One of the things we have now at DLC is we have a really great team. You know some of those people. There are a ton you don't know also. And having built a team and continuously working to build and invest in that team means that increasingly I can do things like strategy, M&A, big, you know, big rev gen, pursue big rev gen things you know, like how do we go and, you know, do something programmatically with certain retailers. And that's all because we've invested, I've spent, myself and my senior leadership time, team have spent so much time investing in people, not just assets, but in people, that we have people now. I mean, like, I don't know, we got three entitlement approvals and a zone change last week. I didn't go to any of those meetings. But people we trained and people that we trained who trained other people we're able to do those yeah, it's things. A real, it's a real and those, company. Those unlock, those unlock real value. Two of, those two of those approvals are for us to densify locations with self-storage, which we're going to develop ourselves, takes us into a new business line, right? Yes, am I funding that? Did I hire the people? Am I, you know, ultimately, am I saying yes or no? But who's going out there in the trenches and doing that are people that we've trained for years, right? We, we just got, we just got, a zone change to enable us to pursue a multifamily component that there I think we'll either JV or sell the land, mm -hmm. but we're, we're growing in different ways because of all that investment well, in those people. I know in previous conversation we've had, I, I think one of the, the things professionally that you've been most proud of as a founder, I'll, I'll call it, is being awarded multiple times, great place to work. Yes. Yeah, so for those who don't know, great place to work is, is a, an entity that administers to about 35,000 companies a year an anonymous survey to the, they call it employees, I would say our teammates. And they ask 60 questions. You're ranked based on your, your team's responses. And it gives you extraordinary data into what your people are thinking anonymously and safely for them. So we are very fortunate. We've We've, we've given the survey to the team six times. We've been named a great place to work all six times. But I will tell you, the hardest day of the year at DLC is when the leadership team sits down with the data from the most recent survey oh, yeah. and goes, we got to do better over here. Yeah, because anything, why are anything we other than a perfect score is like, well, you know, you could get a 9.2 out of 10 on something. And you're like, but what? who who didn't, where's that point eight coming from? You know, and then... 
You know, the first three years we did it, Kyle, the scores really improved. The managers and the leaders were really dug in on trying to figure out how do we get better. And then you start to see it sort of plateau, right? Because to your point, there's a point of diminishing returns in there, or there can be. And some people got frustrated, some leaders got frustrated. Like, we're doing all this stuff, we're not yeah. seeing the bend. I'm like, hey, Some hey. things take time. And you can't, you know, Abraham Lincoln was right, right? You can't, you can't be perfect for everybody all the time. It's just not gonna happen. And I think that that's, that's something, by the way, you gotta get old to, to be able to accept I'm, that a little well, bit. Well, I'm feeling old, but. Oh, you're a baby. Yeah, I wish. I got babies, speaking of kids, but great place to work, I mean, which is a phenomenal honor. You know, I, I, I think, what's the website where they review, Zach, what's the You're website? talking about Glassdoor? Glassdoor. Glassdoor. And my team the other day, like, hey, just giving you an update on our Glassdoor rankings are good. And the highest rate is the CEO. I was like, oh, well, that's all I care about. I think our lowest rated was work-life balance, which, you know, that's not necessarily something we're offering <laughs> in those early years of brokerage. In fact, we, we, in our interviews, we tell the opposite, like, there's no work-life balance the first five years. And then you actually can balance your life. And and so I want to use that as, as a segue into, look, I'm going to, I know you won't, you'll feel uncomfortable when I say you're You've achieved great success. DLC, I'm sure there's always new opportunities, new initiatives, there are always ways to get better, but it really is is doing doing very well. Are you is your life more balanced today in, in kind of the traditional definition than it was early on? You know, are you you know, are you pursuing other hobbies and interests or, or are you still going hard? There's definitely more part of the reason you make an investment in people, right, is to create some of that optionality for yourself. And there's no question, I spend a lot of time at the moment with two reasonably new people in my life, my two grandchildren, and I am loving that time with them. Are your kids I'm, like, who is this guy? Where, you know, like, no, my grandchildren. <laughs> home changing diapers. I am home changing diapers a lot. Uh, They're living with me at the moment. So yes, but I've always, I, I, I had a great role model for being a grandparent. My father was when, when Alicia had Anya, our oldest, my father came to me and said, I'm gonna be a great grandparent, I'm gonna be an incredible grandparent. And my father got younger. My father could really taught me how to age because he got younger by having grandchildren. And I really embraced that and I remembered that and was totally locked into that. So I've been trying to do a lot of that. But I, I'm still very, very driven and I am still very, very motivated to grow the business it's less about obviously putting food on the table every night and it's more about, okay, well, what can we do if we grow the business and can we create more opportunities and career opportunities for people we really, really like that are part of the extended family? You know, can we do more philanthropically? So there's a lot of motivation still. I was gonna ask you about your motivations and, and your why and, and how that's changed over here and, and compare your your why today. And, and I'll give you, you know, it's like a lead you as it may not be financial security may not be survive, may not be like, I don't want to fail. I'm sure those are still drivers, but how has your why or your motivation changed over the years? What is yours today when looking back at when you were 25 years old? Well, certainly the motivation now is about, it, there's some similarities, but it's obviously uh, matured, evolved, yeah. I would say. Uh, one of the things is three of my very first high net worth investors all three regrettably no longer with us, all separately and independently, they did not know each other, encouraged me to embrace philanthropy before I had any money. Yeah, I know, it's a big, big deal for you. And so 
being able to spend more time and allocate both time and dollars to that is really, really a big motivator for both myself and for Alicia. But also, you know, I have, a, I have one child in the business. Anya's in the business now six years. And helping her grow and develop and having the opportunity that maybe other people in the family, you know, over time, now I don't think my, my boys say they're not interested and that's great. But, you know, whether that's grandchildren, nieces, nephews, et cetera, I, I'm very motivated by continuing to grow the business. I believe that great businesses are always growing. It is the ultimate defense is a good offense in, in, in my view. And as a result, we have, a, look, we have a very close relationship with 130 people on this team. We just had- It's a tight company. We just had Camp DLC where everybody, and if they want to bring a significant other or spouse comes, we spend an entire day, tennis, golf, pickleball, pool, dinner, food. And, you know, this is a pretty close-knit group and I want to see those people succeed. And the best way for people, the very best way for you to provide opportunity for people to have careers in your organization or organizations is to grow. So motivation today, growth, because if I hear you correctly, your motivation, your satisfaction, your fulfillment is now more than ever seeing others achieve success. I think that's a big part of it, a very big part of it, absolutely. So I, 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 this is one of my favorite questions I ask is, having been a professional now for what, oh, you know, 30, 35 forever. Years. I, I don't want to age you, but yeah, it would, you know, it's not forever, but you, you, you're uh, like a fine wine, right? Getting better with age, but you're, you've been around, you've seen, you've had a, you've seen and, and really directly employed and managed and led so many men and women over the years. What, what are the, what are the traits? You know, what is a trait or two? that just consistently has set apart, apart the very successful people that you've either worked underneath you or worked with or, or partnered with or even just witnessed from, from afar? What are, the, what are the, the traits or characteristics that really have led people in however many different roles to achieving the success, professionally speaking, they want in life? And I'm going to ask the question opposite. What would you say the biggest, the biggest trait or, or thing that, that keeps people from getting where they want to go? So the full, the full answer literally, honestly, is on, is the beginning of the job description of every job on the careers page of the DLC website. Every job description at DLC starts with a list of five entrepreneurial traits that we believe help define what, ha, ha, the increase you to the highest probability of having success, of having a career, not a job, a career at DLC. Which are different. Radically different. I'll just highlight a couple of them here in the interest of time. Yeah. One is certainly work ethic and grit are incredibly important. I'd say that's like a mental toughness thing. It's not just mental toughness, but it's 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 a little bit more than that. I couple that with, you know, if you you have to be resilient. We are in a complicated business. We have seen we have seen all sorts of no control events, whether it's the global financial crisis, COVID, supply chain, the Great Resignation, the Fed hiking interest rates five hundred twenty-five basis <laughs> yeah, points. We, we all wish that hadn't happened, or perhaps they had done a little less of it. Yeah. Yes. So the answer is you have to be adaptable, right? And by the way, I've seen really, really smart people who aren't agile not be able to apply really real brilliance, 
And I've seen people, so you need the combination of the three to me, right? If you want, if you if you think you're really, really smart and you can deal, you can solve complex challenges and turn them into opportunities, then you have to be adaptable and agile for the type of environment where we live in today from a business perspective, and you have to have the work ethic. I think those three are the big three. And what about, and it could be just converse with that answer, but what about, you know, unfortunately the people, whether it's at DLC or Delphi or people that, you know, you, you know so many business leaders and maybe it's stories that you guys share of, of teammates that you've had over the years that just, just didn't get to where they want to go or aren't on the path in terms, professionally speaking, of achieving the success they want in life. What, I think this applies to a lot more than just DLC. Yeah. If you're me first, you're going to be me last. Hmm. You know, you cannot, the people who make them, if, if, if earning a lot of money is important to you, the high probability is the way you make the most opportunity to make wealth now is by dealing with things that are very complex. To solve complex challenges invariably means you need a team. If you can't be a team player and you're always going to be me first, then you're going to end up being me last. And great organizations find that and avoid it. And sometimes that's hard, right? Because you could have some killer producer, right? Yeah. But if all they want to do is go in their manager or leader's office and talk about retrading their own deal, as opposed to figuring out how can I help three other people? And if those three people make more, I'll, I'll make more. That's hard. And I think it's really hard. So I'm a big, I'm a big believer. I'm not looking for altruists by any means. And I want people who want to be successful for sure. But you have to be able to balance that with the fact that, look, one leasing agent could have the most extraordinary relationship with the hottest tenant on earth. But guess what? If they don't have a good construction team, they don't have a good legal team, they don't have a good property management team, that leasing rep is not gonna get to max opportunity with that retailer no matter how good the relationship is. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You're absolutely right. I asked what are the characteristics or the traits that you've seen in successful people? And, and, and again, I asked the question in reverse, what are the ones you have, you, you, you see in people who aren't successful, what would you want others to describe as the characteristics or traits of Adam Ifshin? How would you want others to say, oh, Adam, this is what he's like? I would want people to say that I was, that I was honest and a, and a business person of integrity in their dealings with me. That's the most important thing. Got it. I'm going to, I mean, we're in real estate. I might as well ask you a couple, couple minutes of questions about the current real estate market. If you got a, if you got a second, what do you, what do you see happening? And not just within retail kind of high level in commercial real estate. There's obviously been a lot of talk in the last six, seven months with fed hikes and what it, you know, the, the issues it caused in, in the banking sector and obviously issues it's causing just uh, again, retail operating operations are great, but that can't say be, be said about office and you know, the capital market side is very dislocated. What are you seeing? Where do you think it's going to go? Just what's going on in commercial real estate right now from your vantage point? So I think that first of all, it's an incredibly disruptive time. Once again, the disruption sort of keeps you coming know, Dan, on top of each other. Dan Horowitz, who you and I share as a very close friend, says, you know, they, there's a hundred-year flood every 10 years. You know? Yeah, okay. It, like, it, it feels that way. And I'm, yeah. I, and as usual, 
Dan's, as usual, don't quote, sorry, Dan, you're right. Don't tell him that. I know I just No, he's got such a way with words. So, so no, but the, so here's, here's, here's my take. I mean, there is a real structural shift happening here in office. It's undeniable. It is actually kind of surprising the number of large, very sophisticated owners and investors who have gotten caught here on the interest rate thing. It's really surprising to me. I, I, I have the utmost respect for, I know senior leadership at a lot of the biggest, and I have the utmost respect for them. But a lot of groups here are really struggling under the interest rate thing. We were very fortunate, well, fortunate and intentional, which is, again, we didn't take a lot of that cheap floating rate debt, so then we don't have as many resets. We had a few, but you know, we never bought caps. We always were swapped at the time. So we, again, this was a trade. This was that mm-hmm. same trade-off, less alpha up front, more risk mitigation in the back. So I think we're going to see, I think the Fed's probably very, very close to done. I'm of the view that there's a lot of disinflation in the system. Having been trained as an economist, I look at things like transportation costs. I look at things like wholesale sales of B2B goods and all of them are screaming recession and they're screaming deflation. Mm. There is clearly a massive deflationary pressure coming from China coming back online in full and I don't think it's fully priced in. Uh, it'll cause, it'll stabilize energy prices and maybe raise energy prices, but finished good prices are gonna be under deflationary pressure for sure. Uh, we're seeing a big unwind in inflationary pressure in food, which is really important for the middle class yeah, and the was, lower middle was, class. That was much Huge needed. issue, much needed. Yeah, it was a problem. Um, and I think that- but Do you, that, do you think there's going to be- def- the, the, other, the other big one outside of food is housing. Are, are you? I know you're, you're not in the residential space, but you're in, you're in real estate. I think, yeah. I, so I think that we're in for- I think a lot of people are going to be very, very surprised- there's a okay, so top 25 markets are going to see the largest number of class A multifamily yep. rentables come online for the in like 20, 25 years. We are already seeing negative, real, net effective rent growth when you factor in concessions, not only in markets like San Francisco. I mean, Austin is negative, San Antonio is negative, Dallas, Phoenix, even with all the yeah. migration, is negative. So I think there's going to be, I don't think that that's going to be like Armageddon, like the SNL crisis, but I do think that that, that, that supply is going to need to be absorbed and it's going to have, you know this because you're in the multifamily space mm-hmm. all the time, it's going to have trickle down impacts on A minus, B plus, B, B minus. It, it, it all flows downhill. Exactly. So I think that that, I don't think that'll be the end of the world. And again, you know, Fannie and Freddie and long-term financing are incredible backstops. Groups that bought stuff at two and three caps with floaters and caps that are going to burn off, that's, that's going to be ugly. Problem. There's going to be some there. Or and some, I think yeah, clearly, some, clearly industrial is not in the same place as multifamily, but there's a lot of shadow supply now, right, in, in industrial as guys like Amazon and stuff sort of spit back the overcommitments they made. But I think the biggest single thing we're going to see here over the next five years is the, the makeup of what's investable and where the institutions put their dollars is going to shift pretty significantly. For the last 30 years, institutions have been lowering and lowering and lowering their allocation to retail. Now, everyone says, well, how are they doing that? Well, the answer is they're writing down their mall exposure, by and large, right? It's mostly been- But that's mostly been done now, right? 
yes and no. You still see a whole bunch of maturity defaults and a whole bunch of negative write downs, but it, it it takes a long time to kill a regional mall. Trust me. I sold I, I sold I think four or five of them in my brokerage days. Like Preet, I sold a couple for, and yeah, that was they were they were tough. They were tough sells. There it's wasn't still a tough. buyer pool for it. But that market will stay. But you know. Seven or eight years ago, the average Odyssey fund probably had 20% in retail. 20, the, the guys who were like UBS and some others were even higher. Like they're all now down between sort of like seven and 12%. That number's gonna change because retail's so healthy as we talked about and the CBD office number and the suburban office number has gotta come down, yeah. right? In most open-ended core funds and in most separate accounts, the two biggest components were office, particularly CBD office, and multifamily. So multifamily is always going to be the darling, and it'll ebb and flow around. But it's taking its lumps right now, and we, we touched on that earlier. Also, some of the Class A development where they, you know, construction costs went up over the last 24 months as they were mid-construction, and they underwrote to... You know, if the market was a four, they were conservative and underwrote to a five. But actually now today, the market's, you know, five and a quarter to five and a half. And, and so some of those projects might be underwater. Well, especially um, especially if rents aren't trending the way they expect. And rents are going the wrong way. Right. And, and they're, they're, they're having significant struggles in lease up. And now, you, you know, first you see a month, then two months, and even some cases, three months concession. It's a problem there. But not, I mean, office stands alone. Like it, it, it's, it's just, uh, there's going to be some pain. What's going on in multifamily and industrial is cyclical. What's going on in office is structural, in my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's gonna be, you look at what were the healthiest office markets pre this last 12, 24 months, but you look at the average age of the office stock in those markets, it was old. Mm -hmm. Yes, there were some outliers. Austin, outlier, San Diego, outlier, Miami, outlier. Nashville. Nashville, yes. But there's a whole flock of cranes out there. I know. It's a little scary when you yeah, look out the window. Me, I know. But, but clearly, the big shift is going to be away from office in those allocations. And then you say to yourself, well, where does it go? doesn't feel like multifamily can go a lot higher. Industrial is going to be what it's going to be. It's absorbing sort of historic increases, but it feels like it'll get there, but it's not going to higher, I don't think, from an allocation perspective. And, you know, the alternatives, right, the self-storage, the timber, the senior living is exactly that. That's niche. So I think the outlook is it as you spin back to retail is that open-air retail is in a good spot to, to pick up, a you know, some of that allocation and drive valuations to a more normalized level. So first time in a long time we get to say it's a good time to be in retail. Last question. What advice would you have for listeners, the audience, uh, personally or professionally, to achieve whatever it is they, they think, you know, they think, but whatever it is they want in life, what advice would you have them to go get it, go make it happen? I think one of the things that, one of the things that served me in good stead that I see less of today is it when I didn't have money and I didn't have investors and I didn't have retailers, I made sure that I was always learning, that I was voraciously, if you think I was aggressive about growing the business, I was aggressive about learning everything I could possibly learn. I learned about the CMBS business. I learned about how retailers make money. I learned about- And a lot of times you, you, you didn't even know why. It, was, it didn't directly tie to your business at the moment, but it all helped. 
you have to be always learning. You have to have an inquisitive mind. You have to have a willingness. And that, that you know, the, the great thing now is if you're not a great reader, there's Audible. If you're not a great you can listen. The audio books. You, you can listen to podcasts like this. Yes. But I think learning and putting yourself in a position to learn. The other one, the big one now, especially with like a lot of, you know, remote work and is you got to get out and you got to network and you got to meet people, right? And not just the ones you want to take from, but people where you can bring something to that to that interaction as well. Yeah. I think those are the two big so ones. So learning and networking, learning for sure. just voraciously consuming information, ideally relevant to what it is you think you want to do, but even if it's not, it's like you never know how it's going to benefit you will some way. And then uh, networking, yeah. You know, I, I heard someone say it's not it's not it's not what you know, it's who you know. And then I heard someone say it's not who you know, but who knows you. I thought that was interesting as well. Learning and networking. And then let me just tie in the last question then. Is there a specific resource that you'd recommend, whether it's a book or it's a series or it's an education that has really helped you in your career that you'd uh, recommend to the audience? So certainly the biggest one has been, the biggest one in terms of in-person learning has been ICSC. And obviously I'm, I'm biased because I've been very involved mm -hmm. and I've done all sorts of educational foundation philanthropy there as well. But definitely that provides you an opportunity to do both of the things we talked about just now in one setting. So that's a big one. T Tom's going to kill me. ICSE, for me, most of my career was International Council of Shopping Centers, but this is why he's going to kill me. I think they rebranded a year or two ago. Does it stand for something different now? It or? does stand for something different. Oh, jeez. Uh, so. I'm outed. I'm sorry, Tom. But here's but here's the thing, and I I, I actually had a vote on approving that, so I'm I'm equally as guilty. Yeah, as just Tom. for the audience who may not know what ICSE stands for, or yeah, I, what ICSE is. So ICSE historically has been the trade association that represents the retail re real estate industry, and it's somewhat unique in trade associations in that it had a very it has a very broad constituency as opposed to something like NRF or RELA, which are really only for the retailers. So it, it encompasses owners, developers, third-party service providers, intermediaries, investment salespeople, retailers. And they do, they've done a phenomenal job over the years in terms of providing education opportunities. Exceptional. And, and so and that was been a big key, resource. Key mantra. So that, okay. that's been a key. For me, it's been as much about teaching as it has been about learning. And the networking is invaluable. So, so depending on the the industry or, or the focus of the listener saying, "Hey, I, I want to be, I want to be like Adam in my space." And maybe it's retail, maybe it's commercial real estate, maybe it's not. Right. So, would you say look to trade organizations? I possibly? think that's yeah. I think that's certainly one. Okay. When it comes to networking, and networking can be really hard for some people. For you and me, it comes naturally. But no, for some, not for me. I'm natural introvert. I, it was a learned skill. So. Doesn't come across that way, so congratulations. Thank you. Nice accomplishment. If you ever see us outside of work, any of the Matthews, we have a tremendous high levels of social anxiety. We stand against the wall. I don't want to be here. Get me home as quickly as possible. So you're funny, the funny thing about that is the only time I've ever seen you that way is when your brother's on the field. And I assumed I chalked it up to that. Which is that you were you were wrapped I, up in, in, in the game. Well, certainly when there's a game I watch, but yeah, as a family member, what's you know, going back to as a kid with, you know, your dad or your, your my, my dad or my uncle, but, you know, brothers without a doubt, because I had multiple brothers play and multiple cousins who play. That's more anxiety of just, I want them to do well, but I want them not to get 
injured for sure. You know, it's, it's totally. I'm sure every sport has that, but football, I think we would all agree is unique in the, the probabilities of injuries are, are materially higher. And so as much as I, I, I wanted my family member to be successful and have that play and, 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 you know, do their job and be there for the team, I just didn't want them to get hurt. And, and I think on top of that, I'm the oldest brother. So I think while I'm not their father, I think there's a little bit of that protective nature where the last thing those guys need is my protect. They're bigger and stronger than me. They don't need me. But it, I think the instinct was there just to, just to, you know, it's when you have kids, it hits, it's a whole nother level. You just, you want them to be successful, but re- deep down, you're just like, I just want you to be safe. Oh, for sure. And it's not just sports. It's yeah. everything. Right? It's everything. It's the relationships yeah. they're in, who they hang out with. So apologies. Things. So trade organizations. So the, um, on the networking side, networking. I, this is, I'm not, I've, I've, taught myself not to recommend books as much as I used to, but there is one book out there. It's been yes. out for a really long time. And I, when people in our organ, when young people in our organization say, you know, what should I read? And the first book I always encourage them to read is a book called Never Eat Alone. This is like one of my favorite books. This is Never Eat Alone. Yeah. This is Keith Ferrazzi. It's probably 20 years old now. It's got to be close, if not. Yeah, I, I read it, I think, my third year in the brokerage business, so that might have been 2007. I think it was relatively new, so yeah, roughly 20 years so old. So I, I think that that's a book that's not only about networking, it's about it's about how to how you might want to think about time management while you're Without learning a, a craft. That, that changed my, my professional so I'm life. A big, I'm a big fan there. Well done. I didn't even, we didn't even role play that. That was no, you've never, I I didn't know that that was a lot of guys at at the company will be like, yeah, right. They talked about it because this is part of Kyle's just trying to drill home that we read this. But I said, just the power network, the pirate time management, just sitting there like, well, since you're telling them, I'll I'll leave you with one other. Yeah. One of the things people accuse me all the time, I'm a little long winded, but the, one of the things that I'm a big believer in is that you get people to do complicated things with you, hard things with you that are for the benefit of both of you because you convince them with authenticity that it's the right thing to do. And I've always believed intuitively, and I've always done this naturally, it comes, you, it, it comes from storytelling. So I did have an opportunity to meet an author a number of years ago, wrote a book that I think is still in print called The Story Factor. Her name is Annette Simmons. She's a PhD, far smarter than I am. But if people are thinking like, oh, you know, pure networking is crass and it's not for me and I don't have that alpha you know, behavioral characteristic for it. I would encourage you to, to, to check out this book because I think storytelling is a, is a wonderful way for A, people to get to know you and you need to get to know them, but also for you to help people understand why they ought to, you know, do business with you. All right. Well, you heard it first. Wisdom and guidance from Mr. Adam. Adam, this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed it. I enjoyed last night. That was an awesome dinner. It was Thank great you. catching up. Congrats on all your success, and I know you're going to keep going. And I look forward to hanging out with you next time I'm I'm in the city. Well, you've you know, look, we were in your town last night. You picked up the check. I owe you dinner, so let's do it. No problem. I I will take you up on that. Absolutely. Gladly. Again, thank you. This has been phenomenal and just an awesome story. And I know it's it's you know it's still going strong. So you're you're going to be out there making plays on the field. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you. Thanks, Good man. To see you. Thank you. Great. Adam.